So this is the last in our series, Written on Your Hearts, and we're addressing two things today. Our first was, we, by the way, that song, isn't that a great song? Overwhelmed. It was about two weeks ago, we were moving into our home, and in the process, we were setting up the kids' room at our, at our house, and uh, we had the, I don't know which radio station on, it might have been K-Love or Word FM or something, and that song came on, and I, so I picked up the phone and called Shelby, and I said, September 21st, you got to play that song. You guys got to get it together. And Shelby can't even be here to hear it. Oh, but you got the email on Thursday. Corey found out. Did you even hear that song before Thursday? Not really, minimally. Yeah, so it's awesome the band can do that. We really appreciate what God has blessed us with in the band. And uh, the reason we sang that song is not just because it was a great song and a worshipful song, but it relates deeply to what it is we're talking about today. Our, our first week in the series, we talked about what we believe. Largely, that's about what we believe about God, who God is and how God works, we believe. Secondly, the second week, uh, last week, we talked about our ideas our identity, who we are, who the scriptures say we are. And then this week, we're answering two questions. The one question, why do we exist? Big question. Second one, what are we called to do? What do we, why do we exist? What are we supposed to be doing? Those are actually two different questions. It's very, very important that we understand them to be two different questions. One of the big problems that faces the church right now is that when we think about why we exist, we answer that with the answer of what it is that we're supposed to do. Because we tend to be doing-oriented people who just get stuff done and we try to be productive. And when we define ourselves and we say, I exist to get this stuff done, then that means we're not human beings anymore. We're only human doings. Okay? And we're not human doings. We're human beings. We exist prior to anything that we do. Okay, so God has called us to do things, but when he spoke us into existence, we have purpose prior to anything that we accomplish. We're going to unpack that a little bit and look at that today, uh, but that's the difference between a purpose and a mission. Purpose is why we exist. We exist for a purpose. Mission is what it is that he calls us to do. Both are very, very important, our purpose and our mission. And we're going to start today by looking at our, at our purpose, okay? So our purpose, you see right here, is we exist to reveal God's nature and to delight in his presence. To reveal God's nature and to delight in his presence. Where does that come from in the scripture? I'm just going to give us, I'm going to run, what I'm going to do right now. By the way, my PowerPoint um, failed uh, on the system today. Josh was talking about all the technological difficulties we're having. So we actually transitioned uh, my PowerPoint into another program right now, and we're running it. Uh, so hopefully things will work out, um, but you're, you're, you're missing some of it. And if uh, it doesn't work out, just close your eyes and keep going, you know. So uh, here's some scripture. I'm just going to run through some scripture making this point. The scriptures from cover to cover, when we understand things like our purpose and mission, you don't get it from just one verse or, or a couple verses. The story of scripture, you read from cover to cover the Bible to understand God. And so there's no way to say like, okay, this verse says our purpose is this, so therefore our purpose is, this. well, you got to read the whole story. But what we're going to do is just give a number of verses that kind of give us a picture of our purpose. So this is from Genesis chapter 1. God says, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. What is an image? What's an image? Representation. That's good. Yep. Picture. Yeah, picture or representation. So God says, let us make man in our picture, in our image, in our representation. So God revealed, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You've heard me talk before about the plural and the personal pronouns there, how it's both plural and personal. Very important when it comes to revealing the nature of God. Secondly, Mark 12, 28 to 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The first iPod I ever got, I had this um, this uh, old school iPod. I don't know. It was like second generation iPod, real thick, real thick. It kept a whole bunch of music on it, but it didn't do anything other than play music. You know, It was an iPod, not an iTouch, and not an iPhone or anything like that. It was just an iPod back in the art, yeah, ancient days, you know, and uh and you could get free inscription on if you ordered one online. And so I ordered one online, and I found the the Greek for uh, uh, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And I wrote it on the back because I thought, you know what? I want this iPod. It says whether you eat or drink or whatever you listen to or whatever you, you know, that, that everything that I do should be for the glory of God. And I wrote that on the back to remind myself that as I'm engaging using this technology, I want to use it for the glory of God. And God writes that on our hearts, whether we eat or drink or work or relate or whatever it is that we're doing. He's writing it on our hearts. We do it. Why? For the glory of God. Second Corinthians. This is the last one we're going to look at here. But when one turns to the Lord, this is, the, by the way, the, the passage that Josh and I preached. This was the first Sunday that Josh and I came to Parker Ford Church, we preached on this passage because we believed it to be that central. Josh said that we were roommates in college. If you ever want to, if you don't, if you have, a, if you struggle to believe that God is powerful and that he exists, one day in heaven, he will show you the real of our freshman year in college. My freshman year, Josh's sophomore year. And, uh, and, and you will realize that the fact that we are standing here Brothers in Christ, let alone working together, straight miraculous move of God. Right? Amen. 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 It's awesome. It is awesome. That could be the sermon in and of itself. That's a picture of the sermon. All right. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What's the veil? It's anything that separates us from seeing God. Sin, namely, and the consequences of sin. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We just came out of that freedom series, and we're talking about how in that freedom series, the Spirit of God removes the veil, allows us to engage God. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
means we have the ability to actually see, visualize, behold somehow within us the glory of God. Glory to the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Right here, we believe that we, by God's grace, forgiven, redeemed by God's grace, who are being transformed by his power into his character. That's what this passage is talking about. It says over here, we believe uh, a belief system is that we believe in spiritual transformation. And that's what this verse is talking about, about how when we stare at God and behold God, he transforms us. Okay, these are all there. Another verse, I'll just say one more that I don't actually have on the screen. But um, in Colossians, it says, uh, Christ in you the hope of glory, the mystery hidden for ages past, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Why do we exist? We exist to reveal God's nature. Another way of saying this is we exist to glorify God. We exist for God. That's why we exist. But why in particular for God? To reveal God. Our job as humanity, not just our job, I shouldn't say that, our purpose as humanity why we exist, the, the very essence of our being was wired by God and designed by God that in creating us, we have the ability to reveal God, to put God on display, to be his image. One way of saying this, and it's said all through the scriptures, is to glorify God, to reveal him. That's our whole purpose, is to glorify God. And then we'll get to the other part of it in a minute. Okay? but to glorify God. Now, we've said here to reveal God's nature. Why do we say that? Well, reveal obviously, obviously means to put on display, to put it out there, to give a vision of, to, you know, to, to kind of take something that might be hidden and to make it known. So you, some, you might hear a church say that we exist to know God and to make him known. That's the same thing. To make God known is to reveal God. It's to give a vision of God, to put him on display. That means we talk about him. That means that we embody him, that we reveal him, that everything about us should eke out of our pores and out of the body of Christ. We should look like God. We are not God, but we should look like God because God is to dwell within us. And among the church, among the church, he reveals himself. So we exist to reveal God's nature. Now, what is God's nature? We're not talking about creation, nature here. What we're talking about is the essence or the summary, the very innate qualities of who God is. The core of God is revealed through his people. That's always been the case. From the first day he created us, he said, let us make man in our image. That we are the picture. So if someone is a creator, they're creating something artistic and they create something that reveals themselves, what might we call that? If they're revealing something about themselves through something they're creating. Okay, self-portrait. Great. That's one thing we would call it. What else? What if, it, what if the medium was, uh, instead of painting, what if the medium was uh, a book? Someone who's read an author. Autobiography. Yeah, so an autobiography. Self-portrait, autobiography. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is the creator who displays himself by painting our world. He speaks things into existence. Every time he creates, the whole point is he's revealing himself. And guess what? We're the autobiography. That's why we exist. We are the self-portrait of God. That might sound weird, like, what? (laughs) That sounds almost... uh, like you're dancing the line of heresy there. 
We are not God. We are not gods. We're nowhere close to it. But we were created to reveal the image of God. That's why we exist in our very essence. You see how before I do anything, I wasn't the one who created myself. So it's not, my purpose doesn't depend on what I do. My purpose depends on what God decided. I have a purpose, not because I have a job, and if I go and do that job, I fulfill my purpose. I have a purpose because God decided that he was going to make me, and when he made me, he already fulfilled the purpose to at least a degree. I exist for him, and I exist by him. Everything in my life is dependent on God, and my purpose is being fulfilled not by me. My purpose is being fulfilled by God. God is the one who fulfills the purpose of my life in the same way that he's the one who started it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to perform it all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. He'll bring it to completion. So my purpose lies within God. And he is the one who is rolling that purpose out for my life. However, when God uh, created us, he had to reveal the essence of his nature. Now, we could have said that um, we exist to reveal God's character. That would have been another word. But you know what character is? Character is like different qualities of a person, something that's valuable about a person. So we might say God is powerful. So we're to reveal the power of God. And that's true. We do reveal God's character. What's the most core quality characteristic of God? He's loving, okay? So if we say God's most central characteristic is that he's a loving God, but that's I-N-G, it's a modifier. He is loving. His character quality is that he's loving, but God is not just loving. First John tells us that you can take the I-N-G off of loving. When you get to the very core of God's nature, not just character qualities about God, but you can actually say God is love. So his, that's his nature, not just a quality of how he lives his life. That's not just a core value that God holds in what he does. He's loving. No, his very essence, who he is at his core is love. Now, so his character is that he's loving, but the core of God's essence, who God is, is that it's, it's described beautifully in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in that Mark passage where they asked, that scribe asked Jesus, he said, Jesus, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And he goes back and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter chapter 6. And what does he say? He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is the essence of God's nature. Oneness is the essence of God's nature. We have called it the triune God. That's not how the, the, the Bible, descri- there's, a, there's some words that are words that we have to make up to try to say what the Bible has described from cover to cover, and we need some sort of theological term to categorize it. We call it the triune God, which means he's Father, and he's Son, and he's Spirit. But the very core doctrine, the very core command is first, before we do anything, we're called to believe something about God. And what we're called to believe about God is his oneness. That what he is, is one. That's like, so what? I'm one. Well, here's the thing that's crazy about it. It's that he's three, but he's one. And that's what's crazy about God. If it's just one, then it's like, okay, you're one. 
But there's so much about God's oneness that's amazing. First of all, it means that God's not divided. That everything about God is integrated and fits together and it all comes down to one. Like nothing in him is disjointed and out of place and contradictory. Everything about God works and fits and is together and is one. Including the fact that there are three different entities, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three completely different persons, personalities, and yet they're one. Not just like they kind of act like they're one. No, in his very nature, they're one. So it's not that God is unified. It's that God is one. If, it, if he was unified, that would be a character quality. You know, he's, he's really good at unity. No, he is one. His essence his oneness. And so when he paints an autobiographical picture of himself, and when he writes the book, the autobiography that displays who he is, what it is that he's going to reveal more than anything else through that creation is he is going to reveal the Trinity. He is going to reveal oneness. In order for that to happen, there has to be a plurality in what it is that he's creating. And what I mean is there has to be more than one coming together to be one in order to reveal who God is. It's getting a little thick here, but hang on to it for a second. This is why he says, let's create them in our image. He created him in his image. In the image of God, he created them. And that's when we're like, Ah, here comes the autobiography. The nature of God is being revealed. Male and female, he puts them together. And, and so, and I, God does this awesome thing where when he creates himself, he's like, this looks like a part of me. And then this looks like a part of me. But it's only together that it looks like me. The essence of my character. And that's the whole point. Is So oneness is the primary characteristic of his nature that we as humanity are called to reveal. We're to reveal the oneness of God. So the reason that we exist, the purpose of our existence, is to reveal the oneness of God, his nature. Now, we all know where it went wrong, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become... One flesh, yeah, they shall become one. That was the point, is that we become one. And in so doing, the the depth of intimacy in a human relationship reveals the very character of God. So God's medium for the art that reveals himself is the basic human relationship. And the more intimate that relationship, the more effectively it reveals the nature of God. And so this is why you can't say that you love the Father and you love God without loving humanity because it's in loving humanity that we're revealing the nature of God and that is our purpose. So as God goes to reveal his nature, he makes us to become one. However, there's a major fracture and a split. What happened? What do we call it? The fall. The fall. Sin. The fall. And what happens, of course, is there's the division. And instantly after we sin, it was her fault. It was his fault. It was, I'm defending myself. I'm ashamed. I'm hiding. Uh, you know, all of the, the ramifications of the fall divided us. And what happens is, is the picture of God, this beautiful painting of God through Adam and Eve gets distorted and twisted. And then they know we got to hide because this isn't a picture worth seeing, you know, and they're all holded up and they're, and they're, they're divided. And it's a distorted, disgusting picture of God. Because what God does is he puts a little bit of himself here and a little bit of himself there. And it's only when it functions in oneness and unity that the picture actually looks beautiful. You know what happens when you take different parts of a body 
and you put them together, but not in the right way, you know what it looks like? Pablo Picasso. <laughs> That's what it looks like. This picture right here, Doramar Ochat. This is, uh, I believe, the second most expensive painting in the world. 2006. You know how much this went for? $95 million. 216000 $95,216,000 by an anonymous Russian buyer, <laughs> bidder, uh, in New York in 2006 for that picture right there. When I was getting ready, I, I said, uh, well, here, here's, here's what's special about this picture. Uh, you know who that is? That's his girlfriend. Seriously, he was painting a picture of his girlfriend with a cat on her head. And, um, yeah, and he loved his girlfriend. He was, like, really into his girlfriend at the time. This, he wasn't angry at her, you know? I asked Evan, I'm like, hey, Evan, what do you think about this picture? And he's like, whoa. And then I said, you know who that is? That's the painter's girlfriend. He's like, I bet she didn't like that. <laughs> this is impressionistic art. And, you know, the, of course, what it is in impressionistic art that's, that we're trying, that's trying to happen is Picasso is actually revealing something about himself about his own perspective. Anytime that there's an impression, what we're saying is we're kind of distorting the way we would normally see things in order to reveal something else that the artist sees. And so he's distorting what we understand as reality in order to reveal something about himself. So in some ways, this is a self-portrait. It's not a self-portrait. It's not That's his girlfriend, but it's he's revealing his perspective. Now, that should say something really negative, but what is it that he's actually trying to reveal? I'm sure there are many people who um, could give you all sorts of perspective about what it is that um, is revealed through this, and I don't know what all it is. But what I'll say is, is that when someone tries to reveal themselves, they have a tendency to confuse and distort the reality in which we exist. And when we look at an autobiography of a person or a self-portrait of a person that isn't first found in the portrait of God, what it does is it takes all the parts of the body and it puts them in weird places and all of a sudden an ear that was supposed to set nicely in the face of Christ instead is an ear that's right in front of their face. And all of a sudden what was great about an ear that it could hear so well becomes a distraction. Because that ear doesn't look right there. And it's not functioning right. You see, what happens in the fall is each part of the body begins to function independently and doesn't find its setting in the broader picture of reality. Different than uh, the way uh, the impressionistic art of, of Pablo Picasso works, Jesus does something very, very different when he paints a picture. When he paints a picture, it doesn't bring confusion because of kind of messing with our reality, it brings simplicity and clarity to things that were already blurry. I, sometimes I look at a Picasso and I think, I wonder if what he did was he would cross his eyes and then kind of like get them blurry and then he'd paint what he saw. Not because it's not incredible art, but because I wonder like, how do you get that like to look like that in your head? Like, how do you see that? Or maybe like you like put salve over your eyes and look through the filter of it. Like, how do you get there? I'm not exactly sure how you feel that. 
But God does something very different. You see, what he says is since the fall, we haven't understand, we haven't understood where we fit. We've had over-exaggerated and over-inflated pictures of our own ego and our own purpose and our own calling. Who we are has become central to us and who God is has faded into the background and our eyes have gotten focused inappropriately. And what God is doing through the scriptures and through the person of Jesus and ultimately through the gospel is he's taking and refocusing the lens. And God paints a picture in which we can discover again who we are, not because we're staring at ourselves, but because we're staring at God. And when we see the broader picture of God, then we begin to understand who we actually were created to be within God. Our purpose is to reveal God's nature. And we are a part of the revelation, each one of us individually, but we are not the revelation on our own. It's impossible to reveal God on our own. Ephesians 3, 7 to 12. This is awesome. It's awesome, man. Paul talking about the purpose of the church. And he talks about the gospel and its power to fulfill this purpose. It says that this gospel I was made a minister to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God created everything, and he has this mystery that he's been wanting to reveal for all times, this, this self-portrait. And he says, and the gospel is the, is the thing that's bringing this to light, so that through the church, get this, it's through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. God is going to show off to the rulers and authorities all around heaven and all around the universe. He's taking this picture and he's showing it off. He's, check out this self-portrait. You know, it's just so cool. Look at this thing. Helping people to understand the manifold wisdom of God. He's revealing himself and the way he's doing it, the medium he's using, is the church. What's manifold mean? Many. Many. Lots of stuff. All one thing, but many parts. Okay? That's manifold. In Ephesians 4, when you get to Ephesians 4 here, it says that Jesus ascended into heaven, and when he did, he left a trail behind him. Do you know what the trail was? He scattered his gifts among men. That's what it says. He took his gifts and he scattered them and he put a portion of himself in you and a portion of himself in you and a portion of himself in you and different parts of God's character and different parts of his quality or different parts of his wisdom. It's the manifold wisdom of God, different parts of his perspective. One perspective got put in you, another perspective got put in you, but we don't get the full mind of Christ apart from the body of Christ. So he spreads it all out among us, but he says in the church there's an ability like the colors of the rainbow. How many colors are there in the rainbow? What's that? All the colors of the rainbow. Seven colors in the rainbow. How many days of creation are there? How many gifts are there in Romans chapter 12? How many churches are there in Revelation Seven. Oh, yeah, yeah. See, we're getting to the place where we're under. And in Revelation, God refers to himself as the sevenfold spirit of God. You know, because what God's saying is he is three beings in one, unified in one. That's the Trinity. 
God's wisdom is manifold. He has different perspectives. And he scatters those perspectives among his people. But we can't reveal God unless all of them are working together as one. When the different perspectives that God puts within the body in his people come together and work as one, we become a beautiful, artistic display of God. We go from being just a black and white picture of it, of a male and a female revealing the nature of God, to becoming the church, where we're the manifold wisdom, where there's even more difference and and, uh, there's, there's more diversity in who we are than just male and female, just gender. It's much further than just the diversity of gender. We're diversified based on the spiritual gifts, but when we come together, it's a full color display of who God is. This is what he's trying to do. And the gospel, according to Paul, is what makes it possible for us to actually engage in this process of revealing the identity, the nature of who God is. Now, how does this happen? What's the power of the gospel that can reverse the fall? Because in the fall, we're divided and we become individualized. Why is it that in the church, the manifold wisdom of God can be put back on display where we can be restored from the brokenness? Because anytime the fall, all the fall was, remember, it was that image of God, that picture of God that got distorted and fractured and started to look like Picasso's painting instead of like something that actually reveals the essence of who God is. It's like, whoa, what is that? You know? But God wants to restore his image. He wants to restore the clarity of who he is and who we are. So the power of the gospel is that it brings us back to a place where we as a church have the ability to be one again. So what is the power of the gospel that can make us one? And there are two passages of scripture that I just hover over and meditate on, and live within constantly that I believe are profound pictures that talk about the reversing of the, of the fall. One is the curse that's on men. The other is the curse that's on women. Men, how were we cursed? What happened when we went and turned and did our own thing? God said, it will be by the sweat of your brow that you will labor. There will be Toil, uh, there will be thorns and you will toil away on that ground. In other words, work is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Why? Why? Is that just some random like punishment that God gave to us? No. It's because we are made to be respectable sons of the living God. And when all of a sudden we don't feel respectable anymore because we've defied God Now there's an emptiness within us, a shame within us. We feel disrespected. We feel empty when it comes to being legit in front of God. And so we work hard thinking that whatever it is that we accomplish will say something about who we are. And that if we perform well enough and if we do good enough, then we can feel better about ourselves. And we get caught in that cycle of self-righteousness, whether it's religious self-righteousness or secular self-righteousness. But what it is that we do speaks about who we are. And that is a lie that comes from the curse. We are not defined by who we are. We are defined by who God is and what he did. Romans chapter 8 is the gospel reconciling men to himself when he says, Listen, there's no condemnation anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus. My spirit communicates with your spirit that you are a son of the living God. You are a child of God. 
And in him, you are more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror. Think about the identity of a hero man standing on top of a mountain, having wiped out everyone around him in the battle in order to achieve the end that he was called to, to stand on this mountaintop and take this ground for his country. And then, you know, to win the heart of his, of the damsel in distress or whatever it is, the picture of a, a hero. And what God is saying is, you are more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror already. That's not something you will be. It's something that you are right now. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what my son did on a cross. He has imputed his righteousness on you. He has taken his righteousness and put it on you. You have one job, to believe it. To believe it. To trust that you are already respected by the Father because of the work of the Son. You are a son of the living God. Begin to believe it and own it and rest in it. Second portion is in Ephesians chapter 5. What was the curse against the woman? Pain and childbirth is part of it. That's the second part. What's the first part? What's that? Yeah, there will be this desire. For the husband. You're like, well, what's wrong with that? Well, basically, in both the curses, what it's saying is the thing that we're replacing God with. We're tempted to replace God with work as men. Like, that's what the curse was, is that we'll always want to do something on our own in order to get respect instead of receiving our respect from the Lord. And with the woman, that there, there would be this longing for a level of affirmation and love from a source other than the Lord to be the validating factor of my life. So I would try to discover my sense of beauty from someone other than the Lord. And what happens is, is when Adam is trying to find respect by what he does, and it's not uh, found in the Lord, and if Eve is trying to find her beauty from, from Adam or from those around her instead of from God, it puts them in a place where they need something from each other. And when they need something from each other, they can't actually love each other because they need to draw from each other instead of invest into one another. And it fractures the whole picture of the oneness of God. Because I exist here with a need and you exist here with a need and we're in a place of tension trying to get that thing from each other. But what God does in the reversal of the curse is he says to the son, he says, man, the imputed righteousness is already on you. You're a hero. You're a son of God. Believe it. Don't try to earn it. It's already done. And then he says this to the woman. Go to Ephesians chapter 5 and he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church. And he does everything within his power. He gives himself up to present her to himself, holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle. You may have heard me say this uh, a couple times before. This is one of my favorite pictures in the Bible. It's the picture of Christ on the cross. And as he's bleeding out, he's picturing a wedding. And he looks back down that aisle and he sees the bride in the back. And he knows that she's been unfaithful and he knows that she has been uh, on her own and that his heart can't turn toward her and that because of that, she can't feel satisfied in who she is. Her identity is broken. But as he hangs on the cross and bleeds out, what he remembers is, I'm going to wash her and I'm going to purify her. And one day when this wedding comes, I'm going to stare down that aisle and there is going to be a smile that's going to come all over my face and it's going to be genuine because I've made her pure and desirable to me, not for my sake, but for hers, so that when she looks into my eyes, she will know that she is beautiful because I desire her. 
man of God, God has said you are his son. Woman of God, he has said you are a part of the bride of Christ. You're a daughter as well, if that's the image that you need. Whatever it is, God restores through the gospel our ability to gain the confidence in the love of God. And when we are filled with love, it says, we all beholding in the face of God, the glory are being transformed into that same glory with ever increasing glory. The more I see God and the more I experience his love, the more likely I am to begin to embody his love. And that's the way it works. Now, that brings us to the second point of the purpose, second part of the purpose, which is that we don't exist just to reveal God's nature. That's what God, when he created us, he created us to reveal his nature, but he didn't create us only to reveal his nature. There was one other part of it. And what's the other part of it? We were the other day, we, you know, we moved into um, this home and uh, moved into a different home. And it was about two weeks ago. And I'm the kind of guy who really likes to get everything set up pretty quickly because I have a hard time functioning if things aren't set up. So I'm running around late at night, early in the morning, any spare time I can get trying to get everything in order and have it look decent and try to get order in the house and all that. Well, the other day, we um, in the morning before the boys leave for school, right now for our devotion time, what we're doing is the verses that they've memorized in Scripture, we're going back through those verses and we'll take them one by one and just talk about what they what they mean. And we were in Leviticus. It was like the middle of the week um, this week. And uh, the, the, we were at Leviticus 26.2, which is this. It says, observe my Sabbaths, have reverence for my sanctuary, I am the Lord. Or you shall keep my Sabbath and have reverence for my sanctuary, I am the Lord. And I was asking the boys, what does that mean? What does that mean to observe the Sabbath? And they're like, well, it means you like stop working. Instantly, I was convicted. Instantly. This is why when God made the earth, he made it our home, our house. But he also made a house for himself, a dwelling place for himself here on the earth so that we could meet with him. And that's called the tabernacle, you know, the the spiritual house. In the New Testament, we call that the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of the people. We now are the temple of the living God. And so what was happening is in the house, I was trying to get everything in order so the house would look nice, you know, and so that we could uh, rest and make it look like a home instead of just boxes and, you know, stuff all over the place. But I realized as I was talking with the boys about this, I'm like, you know what? We may be getting ourselves a house, but unless I start spending some time with the boys, we're not going to get a home. Because what God does is there's this beautiful thing in creation. And uh, you may know about this. There's poetry in creation. The first day and the fourth day match and the second day and the fifth day match and the third day and the sixth day match because the first day he separates light and darkness and on the fourth day he fills the light and darkness with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And on the second day he separates the air from the water and on the fifth day he fills the air and the water with the birds and the fish. And on the third day he separates the land from the water and on the sixth day he populates the land with the animals and with us. And it's this like poetry of how they all fit together. But at the end, there's one left over. And what's the one that's left over? The seventh day. Why? Because in the poetry, there's a point. And that's that the one that's left over is the main point. And the main point is that you stop working and you enjoy the house together. You worked on the house, you labored on the field, you did all this, but we got to actually stop and be together because that's actually the point, is we're a family and we connect. We exist to reveal God's nature, but also to delight in his presence. And that's what God calls us to. You remember last week, there was that prodigal son uh, passage that Josh was preaching on, and the older son 
so bent out of shape because the guy came back, the, the prodigal son came back and he got forgiven and they threw a party. And the, and the older son, and the dad says to the older son, he says, you always have me with you and everything I have is yours. But that wasn't good enough for him because he didn't understand that the prize is delighting in the presence of the father. He thought that if he performed well enough, then he could leverage his father's wealth in order to get what he wanted. And sometimes we get stuck in a perform in order to please mentality when it comes to the faith. And we do this because we're supposed to. And if we do that because we're supposed to, then God will feel better about us. And that's all a bunch of junk. God loves us, not only because he made us, but also because he redeemed us. And he's like, can you come hang out with me? Put down the work for a second and let's chill. Which leads us to the last part of this, which this is why we exist to reveal God's nature. When we're filled up with the love of God, we have the ability to become one in pouring out to the other person. But then God calls us to actually do something. So we exist to reveal God's nature and to delight in his presence. But from there, we get to a mission. And the mission is when you take what we believe and you take who we are and you take why we exist and then you ask this one question. So with all of that, what do we actually do? What do we do? And that's where we get to mission, okay? And this is where we're going to close things up today is with mission. And it says, we are a people following Christ, up toward him, in toward one another, and out toward our world. And if you've been at Parker Ford Church for any length of time, you know this has kind of been the mantra. This is the thing that we put out there all the time, is that we are a people following Christ up, in, and out. Um, the artwork um, for that is not in yet. It'll be in this week, and it'll be back on this wall back here, and it'll look like this. Um, so that's what the artwork for that one's going to be. And all these should be on the wall, by, uh, I think, by next week for Rally Day. Is that right, Josh? Yeah. Um, so our mission of people following Christ up in and out, I want to give you just a, a brief description of what that means, because since the gospel has the power to bring us back to oneness, it does it this way. It does it by fulfilling that love. And we have to believe that we are there. But that belief is not just a doctrinal belief. It's a relational trust. And so Jesus is constantly asking us to trust him. And when he asks us to trust him, he asks us to do that in the realm of three basic kinds of relationship, the relationship directly with him, the relationship with him through the body, and the missional relationship with him and our world, how we engage the world around us. And uh, so that's what this is talking about. The first portion of it is um, is when he says to come directly to him. Um, there's a Cheerios commercial out right now. Anybody ever see the shift? Anybody see the new uh, Cheerios commercial on shift work? Great commercial. I only saw it because someone told me about it or something, so I went and Googled it, and um, it's really cool. There's this dad who's uh, working third shift, and he's dragging. He's talking to his wife, and his wife's like, this is getting rough, and he's like, hey, we only have two more weeks on this shift, and we'll be fine. So the next scene, it's like everybody's asleep. It's dark, and uh, you see this kid um, go over to the refrigerator. It's the middle of the night, and he opens up the refrigerator to grab the milk. And his dad comes around the corner, and I forget what his name is, but he's like, Jimmy, what are you doing? Like, it's the middle of the night, and his dad's getting upset. And he's like, Dad, I just wanted to have breakfast with you. And you see, like, they get out, and they sit down at the table, and they're sitting there having uh, breakfast together at midnight, you know? And this is the picture of what it means to be a people following Christ up toward him. It means that we desire to have a deep, abiding relationship with God. Our call is not first to perform for God. 
Much more than he wants our performance, he wants our presence. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants to be with us. He wants us to know him and to experience him. And he invites us all the time to enter into that relationship, to be those who pursue him. He gives us the gift, the ability to do it. Hebrews talks about it like this. It says, he appoints a day calling it today. I love that. His day is called today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest also rests from his own works as God did from his. And listen to this. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one will fall by the same sort of disobedience. Other translations say make every effort to enter into the rest. Our job is to enter into resting in God. Not performing for God, following and resting in God. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our mission is not just to pursue him personally up, but it's also to pursue him together. It says no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. And that actually should be translated among us, and his love is perfected among us. So what, what that means is, is that God dwells among his people, and if we want to see the fullness of God, we have to join together. This is that whole thing about uh, you're, we're each part of the body, and we, but we're only one perspective. And we can't actually experience the fullness of God unless the joints and the ligaments hold us together to the other parts of the body. Our perspective will never, ever fully reveal the glory of God or understand and delight in the presence of God on its own. There is no brand of Christianity that the scriptures reveal that can be just individual. You cannot, hear this, super important, you cannot have a fully devoted relationship with Jesus just on your own. You can't do it. The Bible says you can't do it. You cannot reveal the nature of God by yourself. Oneness doesn't happen with just one. Oneness happens with many becoming one. You can't even fully delight in his presence only on your own because there's so much more of his presence to be experienced within the body of Christ. The whole point of this series written on your hearts is to lead up to October 5th where we're having that covenant membership thing where we're saying, are we in this together? And the reason that we believe it's so important to talk about membership is not because we need to see people sign on a dotted line so we can say, all right, are you really in or not? The whole point is, is that we can't engage fully in a relationship with God on our own. The whole point of him creating us in his image is that he does it in the multiplicity and the plurality of there's many of us who become one. That is why we exist. And if faith for me only becomes a personal discipline where I exercise something personal with God and then I go and do my thing, I am missing the point. I am not moving toward revealing the nature of God. All of my faith should lead me to the point where I become more and more one with others. And in that oneness, we begin to reveal the picture of the Trinitarian God. So if I come to church and I get what I need in order to get through the next week, but I haven't somehow grown closer to the family of God, then I'm taking a little portion of Christianity and I'm taking a hit of it or a shot of it in order to get me through the week, but it's not actually getting me back 
pre-fall. It's not restoring the image of God. Therefore, I'm never going to be fully satisfied unless I pursue God not only up personally, but in to the community. Okay? Once we come together in the community, we begin to fully embrace God. Then he says this. Then there's this understanding that he also calls us to follow him out. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Many times right now in the church, if you ask people, why do we exist? The question, the answer to that question is to make disciples of all nations. Wrong. That is not why we exist. That is a portion of what it is we're called to do. Why we exist is to reveal God and know God. If I'm more interested in making disciples than in knowing and revealing God, then I'm going to make a mess of trying to make disciples. Because I'm not going to embody what it is that I'm communicating. And we are not going to look like what it is that we preach. We embody the nature of God. We delight in the presence of God. We go after Him personally. We pursue Him together corporately. And then we go out to the world in which we exist and we put on display for all those who are around what it looks like to be a people who are connected to the body of Christ. And if you've been with us any length of time, you may know that the way that we talk about that here is that we believe that God is creating a firefly army. And what that means is when we come together and enjoy the presence of God's glory in this spiritual house where we gather together as a people agreeing together on what God has. Then when we go to our workplace and to our family and we decentralize for a little bit, then we become like fireflies out in the darkness who are revealing God's nature. Next week, Andy, when he comes, is going to be talking about being image bearers of Christ. And this is where this revealing God's nature merges with being a firefly army. And so next week at rally day, you'll hear more about that. Okay. So this is what I want us to do together. I want you to stand with me, please, as we close. And we're going to say two things. First of all, we're going to say together what the purpose is. Okay. Let me get here. Over here. We exist, say it with me, we exist to reveal God's nature and to delight in his presence. All right, and our mission, we are a people following Christ. Up toward him, in toward one another, out toward our world. Let's pray. God, we believe that we exist for you, not for ourselves. We believe that we exist by you, not by our own strength. We believe that we are able to accomplish all the things that you have in front of us only by your strength. You call us into mission, but not just to go get stuff done for you like a slave driver. You invite us into this process of learning to do things side by side with our dad. And God, for all of that, we're just eternally grateful. We get to have a relationship with the living God. We get to be redeemed, even though we didn't earn any of it. All we did was sin. We get to be restored. We get to enjoy your presence and then to walk with you in the most powerful mission on earth to build the kingdom of God with you. What an awesome, awesome task that you've invited us into. And you promise, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We embrace your presence and thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.